The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right, well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I was sitting over there, uh, kind of looking through my notes and thinking about, you know, getting my thoughts collected before I came up here, and uh, was kind of thinking about where we've been in Acts and, and some of the things that we've looked at, and was thinking about Rowdy and Melanie leaving, and, uh, and you know, it's it's easy just to mourn that, right, that we're losing a family. But then I started thinking about the fact that we're called to go to Jerusalem and Samaria and to the other parts of the world. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're being sent out from here. They're going to take the DNA and who they are as a fellowship person because they're, they're still going to be fellowship. They're always going to be fellowship. They're going to take that and they're going to bring it somewhere new and interject that same disciple-making philosophy that they've learned here to a new place. And they're going to be disciple-makers in a different location, but they're still part of the body. They're still part of us. They're still part of fellowship. And so uh, we're excited to see what God does through them. And uh, I am going to miss them. I'm going to miss uh, their kids and, and our kids having really good friends like that. Uh, we're going to miss that. But um, we're excited to see how God uses them uh, in a powerful way there. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And uh, before we get into that, I want to kind of paint a scenario for you this morning, okay? And so I'm going to ask you to uh, use your imagination with me, okay? And so as, as I read through this, I want you to picture in your mind what, you're, what, what, what I'm reading to you or what I'm saying, okay? And so uh, I want you to think of a radical religious extremist someone who is a murderer someone who kills imprisons beats innocent people simply because they believe differently than that than than they do okay picture this in your mind this is someone who who arrests and kills men women children destroys families destroys lives brothers sisters gone I want to ask you this question about that person in your mind. Is the gospel powerful enough to save this person? And then they ask you this question, should the gospel be for this person? I agree, amen. So let me tell you a story about a guy. I read this New York Times article. And it's a very powerful testimony about a guy named Bashir Muhammad. Uh, Bashir grew up uh, in Islam, very faithful to that religion, and as a teenager, his cousin got him connected with this uh, branch of Al-Qaeda, and he was fighting the Syrian army uh, against the Syrian army with this uh, Muslim group that was a branch of Al-Qaeda, so he um, was a jihadi. He was his desire was to kill for his religion. Um, he saw a lot of crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, he was very young, so he wasn't high up or anything. But he saw a lot of crazy, crazy stuff. A lot of uh, crazy murders and the way that they they killed people. 
And his, this was his response to that. This is a direct quote from him. It said, he said, they used to tell us these people were the enemies of God. And so I looked on these executions positively. So at some period of time, he's uh, fighting against the Syrians. And he looks through his binoculars at the enemy line. And he sees them killing some of his people that were on his, his side. And he's, they're killing them the exact same way that he's seen his side kill some of their people. And in his mind, something just clicked, like, this is Muslims killing Muslims. This isn't good. And so he walks away from the jihadism and walks away from the military completely, but he's still a very de- devout Muslim. And he's trying to study as much as he can and learn as much as he can. In fact, his neighbors would com- often complain because he would pray so loud. They would get really frustrated with how loud he prayed and how often he prayed. And uh, he ends up getting engaged to this girl, and she gets very ill. And uh, she just continues to get worse and worse and worse. And he starts to pray to Allah, asking for healing. And he's praying and praying and praying and asking for God to heal his fiance, and nothing is happening. Well, one day he gets a call from his cousin, the same cousin that got him connected to jihadism, has now moved to Canada and has met some people who introduced him to Jesus, and he's become a Christ follower himself, the cousin. And so he tells his cousin over the phone, he says, hey, can I pray for your fiance? And at first, Bashir's like, no, no, you cannot do that. I don't believe in that, and I don't want anything to do with that. That's totally against my beliefs, and I feel like it, it would totally be antithetical to what I'm trying to accomplish. And so he rejects it. But then his fiance just gets sicker and sicker and sicker to the point where he's at, there's anything I'll try anything and so he calls his cousin back and he's like okay you can pray for her so they put the phone on speaker set it next to the bed and his cousin prays for the girl and within just a few days she has this miraculous healing and in that moment he realizes he's been praying to this God that did nothing isn't real and he surrenders to Jesus Christ this person who once was a militant jihad desiring to kill anybody who believed differently against him. In fact, he said if anybody would have ever suggested that one day he would become a Christian, he would have killed him. And now here he is, a Christ follower. And not only is he a Christ follower, but now he's leading Bible studies for other jihads, trying to get them to convert and come to Christ as well. And here's, here's, here's his quote. He said, there's a big gap between the God I used to worship and the one I worship now. He said, we used to worship in fear. Now everything has changed. Everything has changed. So one of our fundamental beliefs is that people can be converted to Christianity. People can be changed to Christianity. Everything we say, everything that we, that we believe is built on this fundamental premise that someone can be one way, meet Jesus, and immediately be something radically and totally different. That's the power of the gospel. And there is power in the gospel. The gospel is powerful enough to change the heart of anyone. Anyone. The gospel is powerful. And every genuine believer in the room this morning has experienced the life-changing power of Jesus. You were one thing, and now you're something else entirely. And so that's what we're going to read about this morning. We're going to read about a conversion experience that is completely unbelievable. 
In fact, a lot of people come to Christ even today simply because the testimony of what happens in this story today. Because it's so unbelievable that someone would have this radical of a change that the only explanation is that the gospel is real. And so let's read. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now remember, our first introduction to Saul was at the stoning of Stephen. You guys remember that? All the, 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 the people who were stoning Stephen, they lay their jackets before Saul, and Saul looks on with what they're doing, the raging and the killing that they're doing there to Stephen. He looks on, and he approves of what's happening. And then... We see him again a few verses later where he goes and he starts ravaging all of the Christians and they're having to run into hiding and, and, and abandon and leave Israel or J uh, Jerusalem. So it goes on, it says, he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. All right, so you, you see what he's doing here. It's escalating. First, he looks on approval with what happened to Stephen. Next, he goes and he starts arresting and killing people in Jerusalem. And then now, this wasn't like a job posting that he saw online for someone to go and, and persecute Christians in Damascus. He goes seeking for the opportunity to, to kill more Christians. He wants, he wants to persecute and kill as many Christians as possible. And so he goes seeking for this, this job. He goes to the high priest and says, hey, will you give me permission to go to Damascus to persecute Christians there as well? Verse 3, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, for the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in a pla and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales from his, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So here's this amazing story of this person who is at war with God, meets Christ, has this conversion experience, and now we know, we know that Saul is Paul, right? And a lot of people will tell you that 
God changed his name to Paul because he was changed. That's not true. Saul was always Paul and Paul was always Saul. Paul is the Greek version of Saul. Saul is the uh, Jewish Israel uh, version of, of Paul. They're the same name. So they were, he just decided to go by Paul because his ministry was later to, um, to the Gentiles. But here, here's this radical change that we see in Scripture of, of how an encounter with Jesus radically changes someone's life. And so what I want to do this morning is, is walk through this text and give us four things that are true for every conversion experience. Four things that are true for every conversion experience. And this morning, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've been converted. You were one thing, now you're something different. And this is everything that we're going to look at this morning is true for you as much as it is for Saul. So number one, conversion brings peace to the rebel. Conversion brings peace to the rebel. Saul was not a seeker, right? Saul wasn't looking for how he could learn more about Christ and, and, and figure out what the Bible says about Christ. This is a very stark contrast to, to the guy that we looked at last week, the Ethiopian eunuch, right? The Ethiopian eunuch is in the book of Isaiah. He's reading about this Messiah and he's wanting to know who is this and what's he all about. Now we're seeing Saul who wants nothing to do with Jesus. He hates Christianity, he hates Christians, and he's doing everything in his power to rebel against God's holy son, Jesus Christ. He stood at the stoning of Stephen, he persecuted Christians in Jerusalem, and now he's wanting to expand. He's running in the opposite direction of Jesus as fast as he possibly can. In fact, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. Saul wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with Christ. But here is the truth this morning. God is a God who reaches across enemy lines to save us. He looked at Saul, who was on the other side, warring against him, fighting against him, and, and what does he do? He doesn't say, you're on the other side, brother. I'm going to fight against you, and I'm going to win because I'm God. No, he reaches across enemy lines and grabs Saul, someone who wanted nothing to do with him, and reveals himself to him in a powerful way. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that loves you, someone who once was a rebel against him, someone who wanted nothing to do with him. He reached across enemy lines and chose you and said, you're going to be one of my children. And he reveals himself to you in a powerful way. Isaiah 59.1 says this, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save. Listen, this morning, there is no one who is too far to be reached with the gospel of Christ. There's no one. There's no sin. There's no, nothing that you can do that's so great that God's arm, his strength, his, his gospel can't reach down and change your heart. So that person that you work with, that atheist that you work with, that's a militant atheist, and you think there's no way that person would ever come to know Christ. Listen, the gospel is powerful enough to change that person's heart. That college student that you know that's the social liberal and wants nothing to do with Christianity, the gospel is powerful enough to change that person's heart. A few years ago, I... Uh, had an opportunity to go on this mission trip to Canada. 
And uh, I know what you're thinking. Canada's like, that's not really a mission trip, right? Like, they have Pizza Hut, so how can that be a mission trip, right? That's my kind of mission trip. No, uh, it, was, it was actually a really cool mission trip because there's a lot of uh, Native American tribes up there, and, and so there's actually a really good work that this missionary is doing up there, and uh, I had the opportunity to go, and uh, this guy went with me from our church. And uh, I didn't know him really. Uh, I was working at the Lumberton campus at the church I was at at the time, and, uh, which was Calvary, and, and he was very involved in the Beaumont campus. And uh, come to find out, he used to, he's a lawyer, and his, my grandma used to work with him whenever, uh, a long time ago. So my grandma knew him, and, and he was a devout Jew, like hardcore, wanted nothing to do with Christianity, and she would say things about Jesus or whatever, and he'd say, do not come into my office and talk about Jesus. That, that conversation is not welcome in this office. Do not talk about Jesus while you're here. And, and, and he was just really strict. And so I met him on the other side of his conversion experience where now he is someone who is proclaiming the name of Jesus as loud and as boldly as possible. And, and, and he, uh, he's not only that, but, but he's in seminary right now He's walking away from his law practice to be a, a preacher. God has called him into ministry. And so here's someone who was much like Saul, who, who anybody who would have met him before would have been like, there's no chance this dude comes to know Jesus. There's no chance for that. But then God gets a hold of him and reveals himself to him in a powerful way. And now he's on mission trips proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the name of Christ to lost people all over the world. And here's a crazy story. We're in Canada in the middle of, of this, this like community activity that we're doing and this Jewish guy walks in and now this guy who used to be a, 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 a Jew has now been able to proclaim the name of Christ to this guy who is a devout Jew. So God used his prior experience and his conversion experience to reach someone else. That's the cycle. That's how God works. Because God is a God who reaches across enemy lines and says, I know you're a rebel, but I'm going to reveal myself to you so that you can come to know me. That's the God that we serve. Colossians 1.19 says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. You gotta know that Paul is thinking about his past as he's writing this, right? He's writing, you were alienated, hostile in your minds. That's who Saul was. He was alienated from God, hostile in his mind towards Jesus in, in the gospel. But God said, that's not good enough. I'm gonna reach across enemy lines. I'm gonna reveal myself to you in a way that will change your heart. Our next point is this. Conversion brings understanding to the sinner. Conversion brings understanding to the sinner. Verse 3, and our text says, As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So 
In scripture, often when we see light, it's this, it's this analogy of, of the revelation of truth. That, that, that truth is being revealed and it's like a light switch comes on in someone's head and they, they, they all of a sudden understand the reality of truth. So Ephesians 5.13, Paul says, everything exposed by the light is made visible. So when that light of truth that, that God shines on our hearts is made visible for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up sleeper and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. What is Jesus revealing to Saul? He's revealing to him the reality of his sin. Listen, Saul in his mind was a good person. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And in his mind, he was doing all the things that he was supposed to do, fulfilling the law, living it out the way that he was supposed to. And, and part of the reason why he's killing Christians is because in his mind, he's doing what God wants him to do. He was one of those guys that, that, that checked all the boxes. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't chew, he didn't go with girls that do. I mean, he was, he was the, the model Christian, right? He was, he was the model Christian, the guy who was checking all the boxes, Saul thought he was a really good guy, but then the light of Jesus exposes darkness for what it is. And it reveals truth that's been there all along. So what is the truth about sin that, that God is trying to reveal to Saul here? It's this, is that sin is not an issue of morality, it's an issue of idolatry. Sin is not an issue of morality, it's an issue of idolatry. What do I mean by this? There was a comedy sketch a few years ago on Jimmy Kimmel, which I don't watch Jimmy Kimmel, I saw it in a documentary, but uh, it was this comedy sketch and, and there was a guy named J.K. Simmons, he's an actor, he's the guy in the, um, the insurance commercials uh, and, and the farmer's insurance commercials, he's got bald head. He, he, in this sketch, he was playing Satan in hell. And so he's basically in the sketch trying to give off uh, a list of things that get you in hell as if Satan has control of that. And in, in the, his list, they're asking him, all right, well, does this get you to hell? And he's like, no, that doesn't get you to hell anymore. Now it's basically just murder is what it basically limited it down to. Is, is the only thing that gets you to hell now is murder. And so the idea and the premise behind this sketch, and really, to be honest with you, the premise behind many people's belief systems, especially in our culture, and it's even infiltrated into our church culture a little bit, is that sin is bad because it hurts people. That is not what the scriptures tell us. Sin isn't bad because it hurts people. Sin is bad because it goes against what God has said. Listen, Saul hurt people. Imagine being someone who was part of one of those families that Saul killed or Saul imprisoned. I mean, he went into homes and yanked out dads while little kids and mothers were still there, bringing them to prison. He split families up. He ruined people's lives. But Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my disciples? What does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the reason he says that is because sin isn't an issue of morality. It's an issue of idolatry. We see this, too, after David sins and commits adultery with Bathsheba. 
He says in Psalm 51, this is his repentant prayer. Verse 3, he says, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. And he says this, Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Sin is not bad because it hurts people. Sin is bad because it's a rejection of the lordship of the God who created the universe. When you sin, you look at the God who created the universe, the God that created you, the God that created all things, and you say, you're not good enough. I choose this instead. And that's what makes sin so bad, is that you reject the God that created you and formed you and breathed life into you. And you say, I want nothing to do with you. I choose my own way instead. That's what makes sin so bad. Look back at the very beginning, Genesis 3, when the fall of man happens, Adam and Eve sin. They have this entire garden. This entire garden, they have this perfect relationship with God. And God says, look, you can have anything you want, but don't eat of that one tree. Because if you eat that one tree, you're going to die. And then Satan comes in, and what does he say? Verse, verse 5, he says, in fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in Eve's mind, he puts this thought that maybe God doesn't have my best interest in mind. Maybe God isn't who he says he is. The issue there wasn't that they just ate a piece of fruit. The issue is that they rejected the deity of God. They rejected the lordship of God. And at its very root, all of our sin does the exact same thing. That's why what we want to do is we want to look at sin and say, okay, well, if I kill someone or if I hit someone or if I do some of these things, then those are the bad sins because those hurt people. But if I cheat and lie and do some of these other things, then those aren't so bad. Right? If I, if I want to go party and get drunk with my friends or if I want to uh, steal something from work that no one will ever know about or if I want to lie or do some of these things, it doesn't hurt anybody, so, so those things aren't that bad. But the re reality is that all of them look at God and say, your way is not the right way, my way is the right way, and that's choosing yourself over God, and that's idolatry. That's what makes sin so bad. It's not that it hurts people. It's that you choose yourself in your way, in your own wisdom, over the God who created all things. When you sin, you sin against God and God alone. And that's why all sin is equal. It's not about the act itself, it's about the rejection of God as king. When God is changing us, he shines a bright light on the sin in our hearts. And he reveals the truth of that sin in your heart, that you're not a good person. That in the depths of your heart, you rebel against God. And when he reveals that truth in your heart, that's when you have the choice. Will you surrender or will you not surrender? Which leads us to the next point. It's this, conversion brings humility to the prideful. Conversion brings humility to the prideful. Acts, or verse 5 in our text says, Who are you, Lord? 
Lord is this idea of submission. Saul says, I'm Je- uh, uh, Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but no one, uh, seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. And he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. So here's a guy who shows up on the scene with physical sight, but spiritual blindness. He encounters Christ, and now he walks away with physical blindness, but spiritual sight. He realizes that God has reached across enemy lines and revealed himself to him and then shined a light of truth in his heart and said, you're not a good person, you're a sinner, and you need salvation. And then Paul has a choice, and his choice was to surrender. It was to lay down his pride and surrender, which had to be a pretty big deal for a guy like Saul. This is big, bad Saul, right? He's, he's walking around killing Christians. He's, he is the man in, within his organization of Pharisees. He is, he is rising the ladder. He's got an education. He's got money. He's got this, this reputation within, within the community, and everybody respects him. But in this moment, none of that matters because he sees the reality of his sin. It had to be a humbling moment for, for him. He, he's someone who, in his mind, he is this warrior for Yahweh, fighting the enemy in his mind who are Christians. And then he has this revelation of truth that maybe he is on the wrong side of the, of, of the, of the battle, that he is actually an enemy of God. It had to be a humbling experience. He had to process this new reality that, that shook his entire worldview. And there's a certain posture that's necessary for conversion, and that's a posture of humility and surrender. Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. There's a posture that we must have when we come before God for conversion to actually take place. And that is a posture of humility and surrender. When you look at the reality of your sin and you look at the reality of who God is, the posture must be a posture of surrender and say, you are Lord and I surrender myself to you. You've heard Julian and you've even heard me say this before that both of us are control freaks, which makes for interesting work environment. And, uh, and so if, if he's doing something, I'm like, hey, well, what, if you, what if you tried it this way? What if you did this? And if, if, he's doing, or if I'm doing something, he's like, hey, did you, did you think about doing it this way? And so we're constantly like, getting in each other's business for some reason. And, and, uh, and so um, I have come to realize and had to admit in my heart that the reality of what that is is, is pride. It's me saying that my way is better than your way, Julian, and, and the same in the, in the reverse, right? And, and so I've had to come to the realization that, that my way is just different, right? My way is different th- than his way. My way is different than your ways. And God has created us all different so that we can reach people uh, that, that other people can't reach. But I still struggle with, with contr- wanting to be in control and wanting to control the situation. If you've ever been in my office, um, people will go in my office and just move the books around because they think that they're funny. And immediately I notice it, and it drives me crazy. Uh, and Becca will mess with me because she, 
I have in my wallet, the cards go in certain slots and she will take the card and flip it upside down in the wrong slot and we're seeking counseling for it. But um, <laughs> I, I want things a certain way. And we do that with God sometimes too, right? We want things to be a certain way. We come to God and we think that, 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 we, that God should do things the way that we would do them, right? And we, and we, we, we say it in different ways. We wouldn't, we wouldn't admit this, but we, we say it in different ways. We say things like, and I've said this a couple of weeks ago, I know your word says this, but what about this? Like, I know your word says forsake not the assembly of believers, but God, it's beautiful outside and the fish are biting and I've got this new boat. Or God, I know your word says to give sacrificially, but, but I've got these bills. I've got this truck note I've got to pay. I've got this house note I've got to pay. I've got all this stuff that I like to do. Or, or, or God, I know that your word says to go make disciples, but I'm an introvert and I don't really like to talk to new people or I don't have any lost friends in my life. What you're doing is you're, you're looking at God who has given us a prescription of what he wants us to do with our lives and you're saying, I choose my way instead of your way. And that is not a posture of surrender. That's a posture of control and lordship over your own life and that is not what leads to conversion. It also illustrates or presents itself with this statement, I can't follow a God that would dot, dot, dot. I can't follow a God that would send good people to hell or I can't follow a God who, who won't just let people love who they want to love or I can't follow a God who allows sickness and disease and suffering in this world. Again, what you're saying is I won't worship a God who's not me. That's not surrender. For you to come to God and for God to change your heart, for that experience of conversion to happen, you have to walk to God and just like Saul, fall on your knees and say, Lord, what do you want from me? It has to be a posture of surrender for true conversion to take place. So what that looks like is that when we look at the scriptures, we look at God's word and we see the revelation of who he has said he is and what his expectations are, we say, your will above mine in all things because his way is better than our own. His wisdom is higher than our own. And his purposes are greater than our own. Which leads us to the last point. And that's conversion brings purpose to the chosen. Conversion brings purpose to the chosen. And this is, this is one of my favorite parts of this text. It says, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he says, here I am, Lord. Get up, go to the street called Straight to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul since he is praying there. And Ananias is like, hold on. You, you, you mean Saul, Tarsus? Because I know this other guy named Saul, and he's pretty legit. He's a cool guy, and I'm pretty sure that he would be a lot easier. I'm th I think you've messed up. I think that's the guy you're talking about. And God says, no, no, I'm talking about Saul of Tarsus, and I have chosen him because I have this amazing purpose for his life. 
Saul was an unlikely instrument. You guys have heard Julian's testimony. He's shared it several times. And uh, Julian and I have become like really good friends. We, we spend um, all day talking about like different things in the office and it's almost always some kind of spiritual conversation. And, and, and often I get to hear him tell other sides of his story that maybe he doesn't have time to share up here. And one of the things that, that, that's really cool to hear him talk about is how he will see people from his past now and, and how amazed they are that he's doing what he's doing today. How God has changed him from who he was to who he is. And not only that, but has equipped him and given him this call in his life to preach the gospel in a, in a very powerful way. God has used Julian in an amazing way within our church, and he's going to continue to use him in, in an amazing way within our community and, 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 and uh, for the future of, of, of the gospel in, in Southeast Texas. I believe that. And it, it's, it's really interesting to see that, that these people would have never seen that in Julian's life. People that knew Julian before are blown away when they find out that he's a pastor. It's the same story here. Ananias didn't see it. All he could see was Saul's sin. He's looking at the situation and he's going, God, are you, are you sure this is the right guy? Because I've heard that he's on his way over here to kill a bunch of Christians and he's been given authority to do that. All Ananias could see was Saul's sin. He could, he could only see the killing. He could only see the beatings. He could only see the anger and the resentment in who Saul was before the road to Damascus. Ananias could only look at Saul for who Saul was, but Jesus looked at Saul for who he would be. Saul had no future. He had no hope. His future and his hope was all built on the foundation of himself. His education, his background, the, the, the things that he's worked to achieve in his life, that was his future. And what a f just worthless future to live for. Because when he dies, it's all gone. And he looks face to face with the God that created the universe, completely separated from him with no hope. But God looked and he saw this guy named Saul who was fighting against him. And he reached across enemy lines and says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And I'm going to shine this light of truth on your heart and reveal the fact that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And Paul, Saul had the right posture. He, he surrendered in that moment and said, you're king, I'm, I surrender to you. And then God said, I'm going to use you for this amazing work. And we know that we today still are benefiting from that conversion. Almost all the New Testament was written by Saul, who later is known as Paul. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be done with looking at Peter and some of those guys. And most of the rest of Acts is all about Paul and his missionary journeys and what God did through him. You are an instrument. That's, you all, that's, that's all we are in God's plan and his, his vision for what he wants to accomplish. That's all I am. That's all you are. God is using us as instruments. And he looked in your life long ago for many of you and, and saw this person who was against him, reached across enemy lines and said, I'm going to reveal myself to you, shone a light down on your sin, 
And then you responded in surrender, and now he says, I've got a plan for your life. I saved you for a purpose. He didn't just save you so that you can come to church and, and be entertained and enjoy your life. He saved you so that you could jump on the team and start to work and build his kingdom with him. That is the purpose of your salvation. You are an instrument. You have family that God says, I want to use you as an instrument to reach those family members. You have coworkers that God says, I want to reach you to use you to reach those coworkers. You have people in your life that, that are neighbors, people that you live with, people that you encounter at, at restaurants that God says, I want to use you to advance my kingdom. He has a purpose for your life. But redemption comes at a cost. I think it's really interesting. He says, this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. And he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Redemption comes at a cost. Saul later, as Paul writes to Timothy about the same idea in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, he tells Timothy, so don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. He says this, but I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. You have been saved for his purpose. And that will lead to suffering. But it's worth it. It's worth it because you get to live life with this higher calling. You get to be his ambassadors, making his appeal on, making an appeal on his behalf. You get to be used by the God that created the universe for his purpose. There's nothing else greater in this world to live your life for. And even if you suffer unto death, just like Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Mark 8, 34, Jesus says this, calling the crowd along with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? I imagine that many of us in here, we have a life, right? There may be some college students that just play Fortnite all day. I don't know if that's a life, but most of us have a life, right? We have, we have kids. We have, we have a career. We have hobbies. 
We have leisure, we have rest. And sometimes we look at that life and we think that that's what life is about. That life is all about raising a family and enjoying the creation that God created. But that is not your purpose. And Jesus says, whoever loses that life because of me, they're going to find life, true life. We're doing this thing in our house. We're trying to pay off our kids to be spiritual. And uh, we're trying to get them to memorize scripture. And, and we've reverted to this horrible practice of giving them money for memorizing a scripture during the week. So we, we got one scripture that they memorized during the week. And then if they say it at the end of the week, they get $1. We're cheap. Um, and, uh, and so this week, the scripture was this. There's this thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life, that you may have it abundantly. And watching Davis try to figure that out is the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> he's like, there's a thief, and he comes to bring life. And then he kills and steals, and he destroys, and he's just, he's just not figuring it out. But I'm praying this morning that you understand the reality of what that verse is saying, is that there's this thief that's going to, his whole pursuit is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to take your life and make you ineffective for the gospel. And so he's going to lure these things in front of you and say, this is life. But Jesus said, no, no, I've come that you may have life and that you have it full. All of that stuff that he's dangling in front of you is this cheap imitation of life and it's going to leave you empty. But here's this life that I have for you. And yes, you will suffer for it. But you will be full because it's my life. It's my purpose. It's what I have for you. You were saved to be an instrument, to, you, to be used by God for his purpose. And that purpose is universal in principle. A lot of people want to know, what, what does God want for my life? I want to know what God's purpose for my life is. What does God want? Listen, God's purpose for your life, if you're a believer this morning, is the same for every single person that's ever been a believer. And the purpose is to make disciples. Go and make disciples. That's it. I don't care if you're a teacher. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom. I don't care if you work at the plant. I don't care if you're a lawyer or a doctor or whatever you are. Your purpose in life is to make disciples. That is what he has called you to do. It's universal in principle, but it's unique in application. So how you make disciples is different for all of us. If you're a teacher, you've got a room full of little kids you can share the gospel with. If you work at the plant, you have coworkers in that break room that you can share the gospel with. However God has wired you, whatever his story, whatever your story is, however the experience that he's put in your life, the spiritual gifts that he's given you, he's wired you differently. And so the way that you accomplish the purpose is different, but the purpose is the same for everyone. And that purpose is to go and make disciples. So the question this morning as we wrap this up is this. 
Have you been converted? Have you been converted? Is there this BC part of your life before Christ, right? For, for, for Saul, his encounter with Christ was at that road of Damascus, and it's very evident that that experience radically changed that man's life. Do you have a road of Damascus experience? Do you have this BC part of your life, and, and it's evident that, that that part is no longer who you are? Do you remember when God reached across enemy lines and said, I'm going to reveal myself to you? And then he shined that light of truth on your heart and revealed the fact that you are not a good person and you are in need of a Savior. And then the bigger question is in that moment, did you surrender? Did you surrender? Did you look at the reality of your sin and the reality of who God is and say, I surrender your way over my way? Your wisdom over my wisdom. And then are you living out the purpose that he has for you? Are you living out a life of making disciples? Or are you just living a life like everybody else? Raising a family and enjoying life, having activities and hobbies. None of those things are bad. But if those are the things that you're living for, then that has become your idol. If you're not living out your purpose and you're missing out on the abundant life that Jesus has for you, you've exchanged that abundant life that Jesus has for your life for this cheap imitation. And you're just living out day to day to day and not experiencing what God really has for your life. Listen, hear me this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been converted. God wants to use you to build his kingdom. Do you get that? Do you realize how amazing it is that God says that I want to use you, you broken vessel, you sinner. I want to use you for my purpose. I want to redeem you so that you can accomplish my will. What an amazing opportunity. There's nothing greater in life than to be used by God to accomplish his purpose for your life. I'm going to ask you to stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. As the band comes up and we have a moment of reflection. I, I want to ask you some questions, and I want, I want you to be honest with your heart and where you're at this morning. And I want to ask you these questions, and, and, and I want to challenge you to not just brush them off and, and, and say, well, yeah, of course, this is whatever. I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with who you are and what God has done in your life. Do you remember the point in your life when God reached across enemy lines and revealed himself to you? And shine that light of truth on your heart and said, you're not a good person and you need a savior. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember that experience? And then the question is, how did you respond to that experience? Because it's possible to have that experience 
and just think, well, if I just, you know, if I just say this prayer, if I just walk forward, then I'm, I've checked that box and I'm good. No, you can't be converted without surrender. That's scriptural. The Bible says you cannot come to know Christ without surrendering to him first. So this morning, have you surrendered yourself to Jesus? Have you made him the Lord of your life? Have you looked at him and his ways and who he is and said, I surrender myself to you. I don't want to worship myself. I want to worship you. If the answer to that question is no, then I want to challenge you and implore you and beg you to come down this morning and let me share with you how you can come to know Christ, how you can surrender yourself to him. Maybe God's reaching across the lines right now this morning and, and, and revealing himself to you and, and shining that light of truth of sin in your life and you're coming to that point of, am I going to surrender? Am I not going to surrender? Please, I implore you, surrender. I would love an opportunity to talk to you about that. In a minute, when Julian begins to sing, I'm going to walk down front. I would love to have that conversation with you. And maybe you remember that moment. You remember surrendering. You maybe even remember starting to live out that purpose. But for now, for whatever reason, you're not living it out anymore. You recognize that, that you're living for yourself. You, you, you're living for, for, for all the things that you enjoy and that you want to do in life. And you're just kind of just living life. And you're not living out the abundant life that God has for you by making disciples. And if you say this morning, Daniel, I, I'm, I'm realizing as you're, as you're preaching and you're opening this, this text, I'm realizing that I'm not living out my purpose that God has for me, but I want, I want to do it today. I want to live the abundant life that Christ has for me. And I want to challenge you as Julian begins to sing to surrender that calling in your life. Maybe God is calling you to make disciples within the context of your job now. Maybe he's, he's calling you to make disciples within the context of your family. Maybe he's calling you to, to full-time ministry. Maybe he's calling you to surrender to missions. Whatever God's calling you to do, whatever his purpose is for you, whatever that unique part of, of that calling is in your life, the challenge is to surrender to it. And these altars will be open. You can come down before God here at these altars and pray that God would change your heart and surrender yourself to his calling in your life so that you can live the abundant life that is so much greater than anything else this world has to offer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this testimony of Saul and how you reached across enemy lines and you changed his heart, God. You saved him and you revealed yourself to him. You revealed the truth of, of, your, of his sin. And, and God, we thank you so much that he, in that moment, he surrendered. And we get to experience the fruit of that surrender in our lives today through your word and the, and the books that he's written and in all the lives that he changed over his life. And God, we're here today because of the ministry of Paul, God. And we, we thank you for how you've changed him and how he surrendered and how he lived out his purpose for you, ultimately leading to his death. He suffered, God, but, but he suffered for your glory. 
So God, I pray that today, 2,000 years later, that we would be a people that continue to live and surrender. We continue to live and surrender to your calling for our life, regardless of what we sacrifice, regardless of what we give up. God, we recognize that your life is the abundant life, that the life lived and surrendered, the life lived for your glory is the life that is full and abundant. So God, I pray that we wouldn't be a people who live for ourselves. We wouldn't be a, a people who are manipulated and tricked by the enemy that comes to still kill and destroy, but we would pursue you and your call in our life. So God, I pray as this altar is open that, that you would move in our hearts this morning and that we would respond with surrender, whether that's coming down and kneeling at these altars and praying and surrendering ourselves to you or whether that is coming down and, and speaking uh, to me about what salvation is. God, I pray that we would respond this morning. And shall we pray? Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.